Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 13, Issue Number 23. This corresponds with the week of May 22nd of 2023. We're going to do a literature review this week. We're going to talk a little bit about the exposome and also a recipe of the week. The free thoughts. It is only in sorrow bad weather masters us. In joy, we face the storm and defy it. That was said by Amelia Barr. Another way of saying that we have a choice over our perception and actions. To be the victim is to choose sorrow. To be prone to happiness despite is to choose life and liberty of the mind. These are simple truths, but often hard to do. And so for me, reading it again, it is only in sorrow bad weather masters us. In joy, we face the storm and defy it. Perceptions create reality. So for us, that's a big, big, big one. All right. So before we get into the literature review, I want to sort of discuss a little bit about the newsletter in general. You know, when I write or read the weekly newsletter, you know, it can often be a study in frustration regarding that which we learn about that is either against what we wish to do or just annoying to know about. And, you know, this week's literature review is one of those. We talk about a lot of frustrating science and the policies related in the reality of our world and our country that go against our health and at some level is controlled by the government in not our best interests. Whether it is masking in children, legalizing of marijuana, or increasing uh, its potency legally, finding plastics in our body, uh, you know, in our brains in some of the new literature, or just air pollution or food. I mean, there's so many layers of this that are a little bit on the frustrating side. But that reality is what we must read in order to be able to make the best decisions for our families. The information needs to be looked at anyway, even if it's frustrating. For me, simple answer is we need to limit disease as much as we can in ourselves and children, no matter what's going on outside of our control. All right, let's get into it. Number one, inhalation of polyamides or nylon. Everyone knows that that is nylon fibers in these sort of different types of clothing that we have. They are in micro sizes now in the environment and they may be leading to inflammation in humans based on translational research in an animal model. From the study, quote, inhalation of combustion-derived metallic and carbonaceous aerosols generate pulmonary inflammation, cardiovascular dysfunction, and systemic inflammation. Additionally, due to the additives present in plastics, micro-nanoplastics may act as endocrine disruptors, end quote. They noted that the microplastics caused elevations in interleukin-6 and abnormalities in 17-beta-estradiol. One of those is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. The other is a uh, estrogen. This means that there are signs of inflammation and endocrine disruption in the animal model. Now, again, this is only an animal model. This does not translate completely into humans, but it's a marker of possibility. And again, this is where it's a really difficult slog in science to understand what is really causing disease in humans, what's not. From a population health perspective, we know we're all getting sicker. You can just look at the graphs everywhere we look, autoimmunity, cancer, everything's on the rise. Proving causation from each one of these independent variables is very difficult to do. 
But in my mind, if you start seeing signals like elevated interleukins, abnormalities in hormonal function, all of which are tied to immune function, you start to say, huh, maybe that's a precursor upstream risk factor for what we're seeing more of. And the answer for me is pretty simple. Do we need these things in our environment? The answer is, in general, no. So why will we subject ourselves to this frustrating reality? That's the problem of the governmental side. EPA, FDA, these organizations are supposed to be regulating what gets into our environment that potentially gets into our bodies. Most of us would start to say now that we're not seeing the effects of that to be in our best interests. Number two, the mask mandate for children was never based on good science. The CDC recommended it despite opposing views from the World Health Organization and the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, which recommends against the use of masks for any ch- children in primary school. The risk of masking in schools was obvious and known, while the benefit was unknown and likely low at best. The European CDC had this to say, quote, As in other confined spaces, important measures to prevent the spread of infections in schools should include physical distancing, improved ventilation, promotion of stay-at-home when sick policies, promotion of respiratory etiquette, proper hand hygiene and regular hand washing, and use of masks when feasible. But this is specifically considerate to the different ages. The very young are not going to wear them well and shouldn't. Physical distancing measures should aim to decrease the number of individuals in tight or closed spaces while ensuring schooling can take place. Physical distancing can be achieved by grouping classes and groups based on infection risk and status, otherwise known as cohorting, ensuring physical distance in the classroom, separating tables, reducing class sizes, staggering arrival times as well as meal and break times, holding classes outdoors. They also go on to state, the use of face masks is generally recommended, particularly in indoor settings when it is not possible to maintain physical distancing. However, implementing this measure in school settings is challenging as children younger than 12 years old, note you that they're stating 12 years old, may have a lower tolerance to wearing masks for extended periods of time and may fail to wear them properly. In primary schools, the use of face masks is recommended for teachers and other adults when physical distancing cannot be guaranteed, but it is not, and I repeat, it is not recommended for students. In secondary schools, the use of face masks is recommended for both students and adults. Masks for children older than 12 years, living in areas with community transmission of SARS-CoV-2. The use of face masks should be seen as a complementary measure rather than a standalone measure to prevent transmission within schools, and quote, European CDC. So, for me, why am I bringing this up again? COVID seems to be gone primarily. There's not much going on in the world of science that's of interest now with COVID, but we have to learn from our mistakes. And we made a lot of mistakes in the medical field and the regulators of how we decide what to do from the governmental body level. Are we supposed to mask, social distance, all these things? What is the future going to look like if another event happens of this nature? Hopefully that doesn't happen. But we need to look at these things. The European Union and the CDC of Europe had it much better than we did. We were way off in left field and very dysfunctional, frankly, and I think was a major cause of a lot of anxiety and depression in young people. It's a big deal. For me, I think it's quite amazing that the U.S. CDC never studied masking before making massive social decisions that affected children to such a negative degree. 
Science and medical decision-making must be made on clinical grounds with the oath of do no harm at the forefront. Harm was done to children nationally on so many levels that we must discuss it in order to never allow this again. The CDC masking policy was in direct conflict with this oath. Vinay Prasad is a physician in California who has a Substack article that shows a trail of missed opportunities by the most powerful public agency in the United States, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. Let us hope that we have learned our lesson. I am entirely grateful for the state of North Carolina for taking a more measured approach and trying to follow the science as it was with studies like those by Dr. Danny Benjamin at Duke. And, you know, the the head of the health department, the Health and Human Services in North Carolina, Mandy Cohen, who's now um, going over to the CDC, from what I understand, did a very good job with Governor Cooper. Regardless of your political aspirations or leanings, they did a good job in the state. And I have to applaud them. I mean, we could have done it a little faster even, but you know what? That's crying over spilt milk. Compared to many other states, North Carolina did it very well, and our kids did not suffer as badly as they could have. So, you know, we did mask with children in North Carolina, which I consider now to be a very bad decision, especially the 2- to 10-year-old group. The 2-year-old group is insanity. I mean, trying to get a 2-year-old to 5-year-old to mask makes zero sense. And I always felt so frustrated doing it in clinic, trying to tell moms to keep that on. Just on their children. Just makes no sense. Hope we learn from that. Um, but we did end mandates earlier than many, and they allowed local schools to end mandates faster based on county risk and the way the schools were set up. And so a lot of them ended early in 2021, which was awesome. Many, many months to a year before a lot of other states that held a draconian line, which was just very bad for humans. So for me, again, I think we need to study masking even more. Most of the studies that I've seen to date don't show masks are very effective at preventing SARS-CoV-2. I think masks in general do have some prevention benefit if you're in clinic with an upper respiratory virus and you're actively sick and you're wearing the mask. That prevents some of the spread when you cough in the room so the droplet matter doesn't get to as far as it otherwise would have. But that being said... SARS-CoV-2 is so virulent, like, like measles, that the mask was never going to stop it from having its ability to spread. And we should have known that, and we should have made better decisions. Number three, cannabis or THC or marijuana, as it's colloquially called, use has been on the rise. And there is now some data looking at there's incident risk of schizophrenia and are they truly linked? So from the journal Psychological Medicine, we see 7 million individuals were followed and 45,327 cases of incident schizophrenia were identified during a long study period. The hazard ratio was slightly higher among males in the whole population. However, among 16 to 20 year olds, the adjusted risk for males was more than twice that for females. This came from uh, Horjath, H J O R T A J, et al. in 2023 in Psychological Medicine. The authors believe that 20% of these cases could have been avoided by avoiding the use of THC in general. So, by definition, you don't use THC, 20% of the incident schizophrenic cases don't occur. 
The big problem is as marijuana becomes more legal, used, and non-stigmatized in the United States, adolescents feel less encumbered not to try it or use it. And this is playing out everywhere I turn in our clinic and our area. We are likely to see more instant psychiatric disease, including schizophrenia. This is not a good thing if the drug is being made more potent by cross-hybridization, which we'll get into in the next piece. But I was in multiple different places in the last six to 12 months. New York City was amazing. I'm up in, uh, what was it, Fifth Avenue and 65th Street area. And every street I walked on, I smelled marijuana. It's unbelievable. It's like, it's legal now, so everyone smokes all the time. And this can't be good on a consistent basis for anyone, but primarily for the young mind. Many studies have shown that it is not good. There's a lot of brain rewiring happening. It's just not a good idea for the young developing mind. We can have the hem and haw, the discussion over older people taking THC for medical purposes and other related phenomenon of use. But in young people, it's not good. And by legalizing it and using it to the degree we are in adults, we are telling our children that it's not as big of a deal as it likely is for them. And for every schizophrenia case, that's a really tough reality for that person to live the rest of their lives with hallucinations and a mind that doesn't fully function the way we should. So let's move on to another THC article, number four. From the journal Missouri Medicine, we see the following regarding tetrahydrocannabinoids. THC potency is rising. From the 1960s to the 1990s, the potency was less than roughly 2%. Since the 1990s, it has grown from 2% to, in some cases, up to 95% at the highest concentration. This is incredibly high and incredibly different from 2%. I mean, just straight statistics here. Unfortunately, the CBD content is not following alongside the THC rise as most potent THC products have little to no protective endocannabinoids that are significantly have the medicinal benefit. So you're getting a ton of the hallucinogenic or the uh, drug benefit that is more towards the social feeling part and less of the protective CBD side, which has the medicinal properties that are very good for chronic fatigue, um, bone pain, pain in general, and some of the other uses that CBD has been identified for medicinally. There is zero evidence from the research that the level of THC that is being used and hybridized is beneficial for any human disease state. These drugs are purely for a recreational high to drown out your pain or sorrows mentally and now are potentially very dangerous to human health. From an article, quote, because there was initially no regulation on the edibles, they were they have been made to look very similar to regular products that people consume, such as chocolates or gummy bears or Pop-Tarts, etc. As a result, there's been a significant increase in the accidental exposure or and or overdose in young children under the age of nine in Colorado compared with the U.S. at large. They go on to say, since legalization in Colorado, marijuana use in adolescence And those 18 to 25 have steadily climbed, well outpacing the national average. Colorado leads the nation in first-time marijuana use by those aged 12 to 17, representing a 65% increase in adolescent use since legalization. End quote. This comes to us from Stutt, S-T-U-Y-T-E, in 2018, and it's in the uh, 
Journal of Missouri Medicine. So for me, this is straightforward. It's a huge problem. And ultimately, we need to educate our teens as best we can. But this is a big deal, too, because kids don't tend to listen to their parents when they're teenagers. They tend to see what's happening around them and follow suit. So if the adult is smoking in the house, that's a problem. And if their peers are, that's a problem. So it's a very hard sell. But you keep talking to your kids always. Give them the understanding of risk. Tell them that there's probability and some off, can, off chances that they could end up with a psychiatric disease. These are not small issues. Number five, a new article in JAMA notes that influenza and COVID-19 had the same death rate for all individuals below the age of 65 and had 2x risk for those older than 65 years of age. Vaccination, vaccinations aided the at-risk elderly group Unfortunately, here's the author's results in this discussion from JAMA. Quote, this study found that in a veteran administration's population, a VA population, in fall winter of 2022 to 2023, being hospitalized for COVID-19 was, versus a seasonal flu was associated with an increased risk of death. This finding should be interpreted in the context of a two to three times greater number of people being hospitalized for COVID-19 versus influenza in the U.S. period, study period. However, the difference in the mortality rates between COVID-19 and influenza appear to have decreased since the early pandemic. Death rates among people hospitalized for COVID-19 were 17 to 21% in 2020 versus 6% in this study, while the death rates for those hospitalized with influenza were 3.8% in 2020 and 3.7% in this study. The decline in death rates among people hospitalized for COVID-19 may be due to changes in SARS-CoV-2 variants, increased immunity levels from vaccination and prior infection, and improved clinical care. The increased risk of death was greater among unvaccinated individuals compared with those vaccinated or boosted. Findings that highlight the importance of vaccination in reducing risk of COVID-19 death, end quote, G et al. 2023. That's from JAMA. All right, let's break this down. Again, we see zero risk stratification in this discussion. They state at the end, they highlight the importance of vaccination and reducing risk of COVID-19 death. But where is the risk stratification? That statement is based on the whole population. So they're telling everyone to vaccinate, even though the data is likely to be different if you looked at the risk stratification. Leading to these kind of summaries for me is very misleading and encourages all comers to vaccinate despite the lack of need for most of the United States population under the age of 65, myself included. The other takeaway that is not discussed but noted in the data is that primary and secondary natural infections had the same exact effect on death as vaccination and booster events comparably. Pick your poison, and the result is the same, again, making the importance of vaccination statement very, very misleading. These studies are the root of scientific community's problem with mistrust, and for me, a major problem with mistrust regarding childhood vaccinations. We are having more and more folks not wanting to use the basic childhood vaccinations, which are incredibly powerful and incredibly disease-preventing. So when we do these kind of studies in COVID-19 and these other illnesses that are not as problematical anymore, especially in the young age group, we are making more and more people who already have trust issues with these vaccines more prone to distrust, which is not what we need long term. Every time I see one of these studies, it bugs me because this is how the scientific community encourages mistrust. The data is there, but you must decipher truth among the tea leaves as the abstracts are completely misleading. 
You would think by the headlines that vaccinations are better and save lives over natural infection that death is higher for all comers. None of this is true. Frustrating? Yes, it is. Okay, section two. The exposome is the key. According to a new article in Nature Reviews, Cardiology, we see a review of all the data regarding the external cause of cardiovascular disease. They discuss the fact that 66% of all deaths in 2020 were due to cardiovascular disease and diabetes mellitus. They expect this trend to continue to increase in frequency. The Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health came to the conclusion in 2018 that chemical pollution is the most important environmental exposure leading to the onset and propagation of non-communicable disease and premature death worldwide. Particulate matter 2.5 micron in size is a major player in this risk pool. We are exposed to vast volumes of 2.5 p.m. particulate matter in modern cities and industrial regions. These particles have the ability to slip into the bloodstream through the lungs, leading to systemic inflammation wherever those particles decide to deposit, and this will trigger immune reactions. From the article, quote, Health risks and deaths related to soil pollution are mainly due to heavy metals deforestation, over-fertilization, and pesticides, although nanoplastics and microplastics also make up a substantial contribution. A close relationship exists between water and soil pollution. Given that polluted soils will contaminate surface and groundwater, heavy metals and metalloids are of specific concern for their contribution to cardiovascular sequelae because they can trigger oxidative stress, inflammation, and sulfur-related toxicity by forming complexes with protein thiols, end quote. If you go to the article, figure three is a lovely picture showing the exposome and all the parts leading to disease risk. Again, this is in Munzel et al., Nature Reviews Cardiology. The article goes on to take a very thorough look at all the antecedent risk factors for cardiovascular disease through the environment and the incident exposures of everyday life. These issues are based on compounded chronic exposure over a continuum of time. The chronicity of exposure is one key to the exposome concept, which differs from the toxicity concept that states that you have to have a toxic load to have an effect. The epigenetic science that we've discussed many times with Dr. Jertle and soon-to-be Dr. Schiff shows that low-dose irritation to the host's genetics from toxins has emerged over the recent past as a major driver of cellular dysfunction. I highly encourage everyone to read this article. The simple answer remains to avoid all chemicals and toxins where they are in your personal environment. Just a big deal. All right, folks, that's it for this week. The song of the week is Need You Now by Lady Annabellum, what is now known as Lady A. The link is in the podcast, and that's pretty much the story. So, as always, hug those kids, have a lovely day, and be well. The information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This Newsletter audiocast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Thank you.